Hi, I'm Ben Lowell, and this is Truth in Life Today with Dr. John Newfeld. John, uh, today we're continuing our series that we started last week called yeah. The Mysteries of the Kingdom. And today we're going to be looking at the, uh, the person of and the life of John the Baptist. Where are we headed with that? Yeah, and the issue of doubt. Okay. I mean, you know, this is the marvelous thing. I love this about the book of Matthew. Matthew gives us all this evidence for, you know, the truth of the, the faith, the truth of Jesus, but then allows us to see in stark uh, glaring, you know, um, just full color, yeah. um, the, the doubt of John the Baptist. How can such a thing be? But we can come to terms with our own doubt when we consider what he went through. That's going to be important. Look forward to that. And join us in just a moment right here on Truth and Life Today. Many of you remember the uh, beginning words in the book of Ecclesiastes. You know, that is a fascinating book in the Bible. It's part of what we would call wisdom literature. Uh, it's written by Solomon, but it begins with the words, meaningless, meaningless, says the preacher, everything is meaningless. Now, it's been said, and I, and I heard Chuck Swindoll say this on one occasion, that, you know, when a university professor starts expressing doubt and saying that no sense in the world, well, you know, no one really thinks it's that big of a deal if a... Um, if a politician loses faith in whatever party they're in, crosses the floor, or just gets out of politics saying the whole thing doesn't work. And we've all heard that kind of stuff before. So it's not that unusual to hear people having a crisis of their faith, whatever that faith is. But when a preacher would stand in the pulpit and say, I just, I think everything is meaningless. It's at that point in time, it seems like the whole world just goes boom and stops and says, you know, there's a crisis that's going on. Now, a brief time before his untimely death, Lewis Smedes, who was the press professor of Christian ethics in Fuller Theological Seminary, wrote these lines. He said, sometimes I hang on to faith by my fingernails when the dream of a new world of Jesus' peace and love is more than 2,000 years old and still shows no clear sign of coming true, anybody's faith can turn to doubt. Wow, that's what we're talking about. And, you know, if this Christian professor says that, I mean, is he still a Christian at all? And if he is, how do we understand this phenomenon called doubt? But here's what I'm going to say. I think if any Christian is honest, they're going to tell you that there are times when they struggle with doubt. I know that I have, and I know that I have come to train myself to know what to do when I'm doubting, but doubt is a part of the Christian life. And so the real question is, what do you do? Now, again, I want to read another quote, and this is from the book, God in the Dark. It's written by Oz Guinness. And Oz Guinness says that unbelief and doubt are different things. So here's what he writes. He says, unbelief is a willful choice not to believe even after the questions have been answered. So it's willful and it's a decision of the mind. I will not believe. But he says, doubt is not the opposite of faith, nor is it the same as unbelief. Doubt, he says, is a state of mind in suspension between faith and unbelief. And that is, I don't know where to go at this point in time. So it may surprise you then to find out how often the, the idea of doubt is expressed in the Bible. Let me read to you some passages. First from Psalm 10, verse 1. Why, O Lord, do you stand far away? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? See, that sounds like doubt to me. 
Or listen to these words from Psalm 70, verses 2 and 3. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled, my steps had nearly slept. For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. In other words, I looked around me and I saw individuals who had bad ethics, bad morals, who acted corruptly, and yet they were prospering in every way. And I had to ask myself, God, why do you allow stuff like that? So you hear the psalmist saying, my feet had almost slipped. I I had almost abandoned faith entirely. So here's what I want to do today. I want to address the whole issue of doubt by looking at a man that Jesus called the greatest man that was ever born until that point in time. His name is John the Baptist. And let me assure you that this man is indeed a man of God. But when we come to Matthew chapter 11, we come to a chapter where John expresses serious doubt. So let me read Matthew 11, 1 to 6. It says, when Jesus had finished instructing his 12 disciples, he went on from there to teach and preach in their cities. Now, when John heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, are you the one who is to come or shall we look for another? And Jesus answered them, go and tell John what you hear and see. The the blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear, and the dead are raised up and the poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. That's John's question and that's, Jesus' answer. So we're going to take some time and examine that. Well, notice in the first verse, it begins with the words. It says, when Jesus had finished instructing his disciples. So, you know, Jesus has been talking to his disciples about the cost of following him. He's told them that indeed the kingdom of heaven has come, but they, his disciples, are going to have to pay a dreadful cost. It may cost them even their own lives, and they're going to have to get used to the idea that in order to be his disciples, they will be called to suffer. So after he'd been teaching this, at that moment, the disciples of John the Baptist came and approached him. Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for someone else? Now, please understand that this text is found in the book of Matthew. And if you know a lot about the book of Matthew, you're going to know that that Matthew is written to prove to us that Jesus is, in fact, the long-awaited Messiah, the the King of Israel. That's who he is. And so Matthew uh, presents Jesus by helping us to see both what he teaches and what Jesus does. I mean, there are powerful miracles that Jesus does. He raises the dead. He gives sight to the blind. Uh, Lepers are cleansed. Um, He even is able to walk on water. He is able to speak to nature itself, and it obeys his voice. I mean, if you want evidence that Jesus is who he says he is, I mean, Matthew is just filled with this kind of stuff. When you finish reading the book, if you come to the conclusion this is historic stuff, which it is, you should come to the conclusion that Jesus is none other than the King of Israel and the long-awaited Messiah and the King over all the nations of the world and that he's come to introduce the kingdom of heaven. But that's where John stumbles. He wants to know if that's really the case given the fact that he sees evil people getting their way even while Jesus claims to be the King. And that might be some of our reasons for doubting as well.
Now, in order to understand John the Baptist's doubt about the identity of Jesus, uh, given that, you know, Jesus has been acting and doing the things that he has, we need to step back for a moment and do a little history of John the Baptist. In Matthew chapter 3, verses 1 to 2, it says, In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now, see, you need to get right with God, because John is saying there's a, a, a major event that's about to happen. The kingdom of heaven, long anticipated, is about to come into the present. Given that reality, you need to get right with God. Um, and then if you go forward to Matthew 4, verse 17, it says, From that time Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So turns out Jesus, John the Baptist, had the very same message. So we know that John's role in the ministry of Jesus is that he is a forerunner to the Messiah. He tells people to repent and get ready because when the Messiah comes, the kingdom of heaven will come. Now, for those of us who, who aren't familiar with the whole idea of the kingdom of heaven, uh, let me give uh, some explanation of what it is that we're talking about. The Bible presents God all throughout all 66 books that make up our Bible as the sovereign God, meaning that God rules over all the kingdoms of the world. God rules over everything. God rules over every single human being. He rules over nature. It's his creation. He rules it. But sometimes, because of God's long-term plans, he allows evil to prevail for a present moment. See, that's what sovereignty means. God will even use evil for his own designs. That's why Joseph, for instance, could say to his brothers, you intended this for evil, but God intended it for good. So God even rules over the evil choices that people make. That's God's sovereignty. But the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God is something else. The kingdom of heaven speaks of the day in which evil is vanquished. So if you listen to John the Baptist preaching, here's what he says, and I'm reading Matthew chapter 3, verse 10. Even now the axe is laid at the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. See, John is saying that when the kingdom of heaven comes, along with the great blessing of God, when God will pour out a blessing and redeem his people and make them permanently his own, at that time also an axe is coming. Everyone who refuses the demands of the king is going to be laid waste like a tree that's chopped down by an axe. So for that reason, you'd better repent. Now here's John's problem. When we come to Matthew chapter 11, John is then in prison. Now here's something interesting about John's imprisonment. The ancient Jewish historian who lived shortly after Jesus, said that John the Baptist was locked up in the fortress of Macarius. It's about seven kilometers east of the Dead Sea. This would have been a resort for King Herod, but it would also have included a gloomy dungeon down in the basement. And by the time we get to Matthew chapter 11, John would most likely have been in that prison for about a year, and he would have been locked up. I suspect he would have seen precious little of the sun. He's in darkness. He's in gloomy environment. Um, and he has been telling people prior to this, whenever he saw Jesus, you know, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. John is convinced that Jesus is the great king. He's as convinced as Matthew is when he writes the book of Matthew. 
But at some point in time, John is facing the fact that there is an evil man by the name of Herod Antipas, who has no fear of God, who does whatever he wants to, uh, who commits adultery at will, uh, who treats his citizens with cruelty. And now he's arrested John, the prophet of God, and he laughs at the commands of God. And John says, well, this doesn't sound like the kingdom of God. And in this moment of doubt, deep down in a dungeon, in a prison, he calls his disciples to him. Somehow they must have had access to him in that dungeon. And he says, look, I want you to go back to Jesus and just just ask him, is he really the one who is to come? Because I'm finding little evidence in this dungeon. And as we hear that, we need to hear our own plaintive cries before God. God, didn't you say, that you had come to bring the reign of God. Didn't Jesus come to do that? And yet here's what I'm going through. And it may not be a dungeon that is a physical one, but it, you know, it might seem psychologically like one to you. And if that's the case, you have gotta hear John's question. And John's question is something that Matthew records. In other words, Matthew's saying to us, look, I'm giving you all of the evidence that Jesus truly is the great king, the long expected one who ushers in the kingdom. But when I'm doing that, please understand that I'm, that I'm just not doing this by presenting one side of the picture. I'm gonna help you to see those people who doubted, and I'm gonna help you to see how their questions were answered. So, so John sees the ax swinging, and, and he sees Jesus not swinging it. And so John is going to ask, are you the one is to come? Now, I, I need to say at this juncture, we're reading Matthew 11, And the answer fully to John's question doesn't come up until we get to Matthew 13. In Matthew 13, uh, we have Jesus telling a series of parables. There are seven of them in that chapter. And those seven parables are designed to answer fully everything that John has. But at this juncture, Jesus does have something to say to John. Notice again, he says, you know, they, they uh, go to Jesus and they said, you know, are, we, are you the one who is to come or should we look for another? And listen to Jesus' answer. Go and tell John what you hear and see. And then there's a list of the miracles that he's doing. I mean, who can do this kind of stuff? Well, uh, we know, for instance, when it comes to casting out of demons, that if you're looking through the First Testament, the first 39 books of our Bible, we often call it the Old Testament. When we look through the First Testament, what we do find is that no one in the First Testament was able to set demons on the run. Jesus does it with great ease. Oh, who had the ability to simply command nature and it would instantly obey? Who had the power over life and death? See, Jesus says, go tell John what you see and hear. But we still might have questions. You know, if Jesus is really the great king, which he is, he's the ruler of the world. He's the one that has brought the kingdom of heaven to the present hour. Now, if that's true, and I'm saying that it is, then remember Professor Lewis Smead's comments. The promise of a new world, he said, is now no nearer, or it seems no nearer, 2,000 years after John. If John is saying, look, why am I struggling in prison? Dr. Smead says, look, here I am so many years later and I'm still struggling with the same thing. So for us, the question is always, does God keep his promises? 
And here's why we ask these questions. Sickness, death, the prevalence of evil, both in our world and the evil that's done to us personally. Um, war, natural disasters, sometimes just the despair that we feel in ourselves saying, is there really meaning in the world? I mean, all of these things lead us in this great sense of doubt. And John, you'll remember, has gone out and he's preached that there would be a baptism of the Holy Spirit and a baptism of fire. So the baptism of the Holy Spirit is this new era in which the Holy Spirit is poured out and great blessing comes on God's people. The baptism of fire is when the chaff gets gathered and thrown into the fire. It's judgment on the wicked. So John says two things are coming when the kingdom of heaven comes. First of all, God blesses his own people. And then secondly, he brings judgment on the wicked. And John's saying, but the wicked are doing just fine, so what's going on? So here's a question I need to ask. Has God promised that he would bring justice to the wicked? And the answer is, yes, he has both in the First Testament and in the New Testament, that's constantly reiterated. Jesus is the great king, and the kingdom of heaven means that wickedness is going to be brought to an end. That's a fact. But here's another question that we need to ask. What if the timetable of those two events are different than we had expected? See, even though the prophets in the First Testament predicted that the time would come when, both, when there would be both an outpouring of blessing on the righteous and a judgment on the wicked, uh, even though they said both of those things would happen, they never told us the timetable in which they would happen. So imagine it this way. Imagine you're looking through a telescope, and as you look through a telescope, you see a two mountains. And you see those two mountains together. I'm going to call one the blessing on the righteous and the second mountain I'm going to call the judgment on the wicked. There they are. Surely those two events are going to happen. But let's say now you finally get to the first mountain, the blessing on the righteous, and then you notice that the second mountain, the judgment of the wicked, is actually still a distance away. There's actually a large valley between the two of them. When you looked way back where you used to be, you saw those two mountains. They were real, but now you've come to realize that there's a gap between those two events. And that's precisely what we find in Jesus. The great blessing on the righteous has begun, but the judgment on the wicked is to be delayed for the present hour. Now, if you're asking yourself, I mean, how can that possibly be? I mean, how and why does God act that way? And the answer will be found in Matthew chapter 13. Jesus will tell seven parables and he'll explain that matter fully to us. But for now, he begins by asking John, listen, to what people are saying when they have seen my ministry. Remember, John's in prison. He hasn't been witnessing all these miracles, but his disciples have. So he knows he can trust his disciples. So the disciples come back and they say, no, no, John, it's really true. The blind do see, the lame are walking, the, uh, the deaf are hearing, lepers are being cleansed, and we've even seen some who are physically dead, and Jesus raised them from the dead. These are unmistakable evidence that the kingdom of heaven is upon us. And here's what I want to say about doubt. It's not that, you know, we are now seeing all of the evidence of the kingdom of heaven, but we've seen enough of it. You know, listen to Oz Guinness again in his book, A God in the Dark. He says, sometimes when I listen to people who say they've lost their faith, 
He says, I am far less surprised than they expect. If their view of God is what they say, then it's only surprising that they didn't reject him much earlier. (laughs) You know, I think that's right. See, sometimes we assume that God should act in a way that we've already prejudged he should act. And then when we find out he's not acting in the way that we thought he should, we say, I've lost faith. We've lost faith because we've assumed God is as we pretend him to be. God has a timetable in which he will bring his kingdom fully into effect. For now, he comes to bring blessing. And in our hour, he is bringing blessing. He's reconciling human beings to God. He, by his own death on the cross, made peace with God, and he has brought eternity into our hearts. He's given us a new heart so that we find the things of God to be lovely and welcome in our own lives, even when those things demand that we repent and go the hard way of discipleship. See, that's what God has done for us. And then there are times as well in which God supernaturally intervenes, and he may even bring physical healing and all manner of miracles into our lives. Yeah, you know, the kingdom of heaven has truly arrived. But at the same time, God has also promised us that he has, for the time period, delayed the judgment of the wicked. We live in this interesting day of an overlap of two ages. The kingdom of heaven has come, but wickedness and the old age still remains for the present hour until God brings it to an end. So what's required? Well, in the meantime, we're going to have to be patient. John is going to have to languish in that prison because that is what God has ordained he should do. That doesn't mean that the kingdom of heaven isn't real. You know, Herod will have his day in the sun, but he too will be judged in the end of the day. That's a fact. John will be a righteous man who is in prison, and he may remain there until the time when God calls this matter to an end. Brother and sister in Christ, don't you understand this truth? Some of you are struggling because you've never asked and had answered the same question that Jesus answers for John. The kingdom has come, but it still awaits a final hour. Well, welcome back to Truth and Life Today with Dr. John Newfeld. John, thanks for your message today. You know, there is a sense when we talk about John the Baptist and this story that in, in a way we're, we're, we're being given permission to have doubts. I think we are, Ben. Um, you know, if we define doubt the way that I have, then we're saying that doubt is different than unbelief. And in that case, there are things that I think that every single Christian goes through and they they may question, I mean, God, how can you allow this? You know, as the psalmist said, my feet had almost slipped. I was just troubled over the arrogance of the wicked and God doesn't seem to do anything. I mean, I could have talked about Habakkuk and saying, God, how can you allow Jerusalem to be filled so full of wickedness and you don't seem to be doing anything? The Bible has given many examples of that, none the least Job. Yeah. You know, I'm thinking uh, uh, when people have doubts, often that means, particularly who are walking with the Lord, does that mean we're ha- having a sense of losing our faith or, or whatever the case might be? But what should we do with our doubts? Yeah, that's such a good question because 
I know that there are some circles, and Ben, I remember having a conversation with a woman who said, I've never doubted anything in my life, and I, at that moment, doubted her. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, I don't think that's possible. Yeah. Um, and so, but there are some people that have a veneer in which, you know, in their way of thinking, I mean, to, to show any weakness or any doubt would be akin to being a non-believer. Yeah. And if that's our attitude, I'm going to say, there's very little hope or help that can be given to such a person. You know, one of the things that I know happens, particularly with men, is their lack of willingness to share uh, their concerns or their doubts uh, because how people might perceive them. Yeah, weakness, yes. Yeah, yeah we're supposed to be strong. Yeah. So there's all of that, but it, it, there's the other thing is that we need to know what to do with our doubts. I mean, where are our doubts answered? I mean, sometimes it's intellectual, but sometimes it's just emotional. Sometimes it's, how do I deal with anger I feel over unrighteousness? And God, how could you allow that? I'm not doubting God now, but I, I just wish he would deal with this thing now and he doesn't seem to be, does he really care for me? That's an emotional rather than intellectual statement, but it still has to be dealt with. Yeah. Now, next week, you're going to be dealing with uh, one of the, I think, probably more famous parables yeah. that Jesus spoke, the parable of the sower. Tell me where you're going with that. Yeah, we're going to talk about uh, how should we understand individuals who seem to believe at one moment and then don't the next. What should we do with that? Well, thanks so much for today, John. And remember to join us again next week right here on Truth and Life Today. Mm -hmm.